I live by my calendar and to-do list. I look at them all the time. They, what are the, the must-do things today? What are the, the one or two things I mustn't fail? Anita went away for a few days at the start of last week. And as she left, we discussed the things that had to happen for the family to operate. And to be honest, Anita better not be listening, I prioritised, I decided what I thought was most important, the things that would be close to unforgivable to forget, and those were the things that I focused on. In the week leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus was asked about the most important commandment. It's a fair enough question. The Old Testament laws had loads of rules and instructions and commandments. There are so many. So where should your focus be? Should it be on the sacrifices or getting the priest's clothes right? Should it be on the food you do or don't eat? Or is it the things to do with money or murder? What's the most important? Where should our priorities be? What needs to be the top of your to-do list for God's commandments? In answering this question, Jesus speaks into a long conversation, a a long conversation that runs through many of the Old Testament prophets, including Zechariah. So we're hearing God speak through Zechariah. And the big thing in Zechariah is rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC. But now with the encouragement of Zechariah and Haggai, the temple is starting to come together. So we're up to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah 7 is set in the fourth year of King Darius. And we know the temple was completed in Darius's sixth year. And so at this point in Israel's history, the project's well underway. And this leads some Jewish people to wonder, is this the end of sadness? Should we stop mourning and grieving everything that happened 70 years ago when Jerusalem was invaded and the temple destroyed and the people taken away as exiles? So that's their question. Is it sadness no more? So have a look how it's asked in chapter 7. So Zechariah chapter 7 verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Shereza and Regem Melech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? In the law of Moses, uh, there was one annual fast commanded. It was part of the day of atonement. But it seems since the Babylonian invasion, they'd set up a whole bunch more days of mourning. At least four more annual fasts to commemorate horrific events in their history. Uh, The most significant one was the fast of the fifth month. It commemorated the temple's destruction. Uh, You can see this in two kings. The temple was destroyed. It was set fire to in the fifth month. And so their question is, now the temple's almost rebuilt, is this it? Is sadness no more? Is there no more need for sorry days, for lament and grieving and fasting? Because finally our shame is undone. Has God finally again smiled on his people, returned to his people? So do you get their question and why they're asking this question? Should we stop our fasts? 
the response these people got must have surprised them. Their question was very simple. It was kind of a yes or no question. Do we fast? Do we not fast? But God responds with serious, searing words for them. God's response gets to their heart. What is most important for you? Religion or love? Piety or care for the poor? So have a listen to what God says. Verse 4, Zechariah 7, 4. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? God says, your fasting was fake. It wasn't about devotion to me. You're fasting for yourselves. They were mourning the, the state of their nation, the shame and the disgrace that had befallen them. Their fasting wasn't about God's glory, it was for their own. And you can see this because despite all their outward religion, fasts and fasts and fasts, they were really serious. Although it looked like they loved God, they didn't love their neighbour, which is exactly the sin of their ancestors. And that shows if you don't love your neighbour, you're actually not loving God. Verse 8. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So how do we know, how do they know their fasting was fake? Well, because they didn't care for the poor and marginalised. Whilst they were fasting, claiming to mourn for God's glory, at the same time they were oppressing widows, fatherless, orphans, foreigners, what we would call immigrants or refugees, and others in poverty. Claiming to love God, but treating his image bearers badly. I wonder what God might say. Are our religious practices true or fake, and how can we tell? The question we might raise, it's probably not about fasting. Maybe it is. Maybe it's our prayer or our personal Bible reading or our our songs of praise or gathering as church. Would God be right in asking us that same question? Do we do all these things for him or for ourselves? And how could you tell? How could you actually make that assessment of your heart? Because the outward act probably looks the same. You know, you've got a hungry belly, no matter why you're fasting. How do you actually assess your heart? How do you know your own heart? In 1 John, uh, we read an astounding statement that reflects what Zechariah said. 1 John 4.20 Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. Like Zechariah, John says, loving God, loving one another, they go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. In fact, if you claim to love God, but you're not loving other believers, and I think that's what brother and sister means in 1 John, if you claim to love God, but don't love other Christians, you are a liar. 
you're not loving the people you can see, how on earth do you think you can love God who you can't? If you're oppressing widows and foreigners, women and immigrants, how on earth do you think God's impressed by your piety, your religious deeds? The searing question God asks. Now back to Zechariah. As yet, he hasn't actually addressed fasting. He's not saying their fasts were wrong in themselves. God's addressing a deeper issue, a heart issue. If these people had been loving other people, I don't think God would voice any complaints about their fasts. But Zechariah's message is, don't think you can fool God. Don't think God is fooled by your religion, that you love him whom you can't see when you don't love people who you can't. Love is a somewhat nebulous term, isn't it? But we have to say, particularly in the light of Zechariah, love isn't just a feeling or disposition. It leads to real action, caring for people's physical needs. That's one of the things widows and orphans need, isn't it? Food on the table. It's also caring for their emotional and spiritual needs. I've really loved our growth groups this term, reading uh, Caring for One Another and, and looking at what the Bible has to say about what God calls us to do for one another. Uh, the discussions have been really helpful as we've wrestled with our failings to care and been encouraged, this is what I've loved about the book, just about taking little steps in love. Uh, we're not always good at taking initiative, at getting to know our brothers and sisters at church. Uh, we need to learn to put into practice praying with one another as we share our struggles and sins. And all of this begins by being humble enough to, not, to admit that we need God and we need each other. Church is not a spectator sport. Even hearing God's word is not passive. We actively hear, mark, observe and inwardly digest. Church is active. We gather in the name of Jesus to encourage and spur each other on, to put into practice loving God and loving one another. Church is not about me and God. It is not about my personal piety. If that's what God wanted for his church, he wouldn't have had a church. He would have just said, go into your own room, read the Bible and listen to something on the internet. No, church, what God commands is about his people gathering together to be his people, loving God together and loving each other. The two must go together. But hearing all this, are you exhausted? <laughs> As you read Zechariah 7, imagine what they would think. Oh, how can we do this, God? My life is complicated. I've got to focus. There's always more I could do out of loving God and loving others. And we're always going to fail to live up to our own expectations, let alone God's. Maybe the expectation to not oppress. That should be easy. But then again, you look through history. We're pretty good at oppressing the poor, aren't we? There's always more we could do. So you read Zechariah 7 and you just go, fantastic. Thanks, God. Just another burden. Well, as we turn to chapter 8... As Zechariah continues, this is still God's answer. You've got to remember, Zechariah 8 is still the answer to Zechariah 7. It's still answering that question about should we fast? It's still part of, it comes as a response to God's rebuke of his people. What's amazing is after the rebuke of chapter 7, chapter 8, God promises sadness no more. Uh, there are 10 promises in chapter 8. Uh, we're going to move through them pretty quickly. 
And the first promise is, despite God's people's failure to love God truly, and we know they don't love God because they don't love other people, they don't, they're actually oppressing the vulnerable, despite Israel's failures to love, God burns with love for his people. So this is verse 1, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. I am burning with jealousy for her. Jealousy normally is seen as a bad thing. That's not the sense here. You can tell because it can't be a bad thing if it's what God's doing. Do not confuse. It's a bit of an English lesson. Do not confuse jealousy with envy. Envy is wanting what someone else has got. Jealousy is loving what belongs to you. It's good and right for a wife to be jealous for her husband's love, desire and affection. And that's the kind of jealous love God has. He he promises this love to his people despite their hard hearts. He loves not because they're lovely, but because he is love. And because of his love, God promises his presence with his people. Verse 3, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. We've heard this kind of promise all through Zechariah. It's the big point of the vision of the lampstand and olive trees. God is present with his people by his spirit. And God's presence takes concrete form as the temple is rebuilt. God will be present with his people. The third promise is of a restored nation, a restored people of God. Verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Uh, The picture? Jerusalem, the city of God's king and God's temple, filled with young and old. And there's no tears, is there? No, No tears, no weeping or mourning, no fear of enemies or warfare. No, instead, people live to a ripe old age. Children playing in the streets. Which compared to what Jerusalem was like in those days, destroyed by war, this is a jaw-dropping promise. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvellous to the remnant, the the leftovers of the people at this time, but will it seem marvellous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. We don't know the half of what God can and will do. We don't know the half of it. It might seem marvellous to us. It's not marvellous to God, which is how Zechariah continues. It's just promise after promise and God's promises get bigger. God is going to regather his people, his people who've been scattered by invading empires, people who've been scattered because of their sin, God will regather. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I'll bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. In this promise, the words, my people, I think it's specifically ethnic Israel, the biological descendants of Abraham. And in small ways, this happened. 
This happened between the time of Zechariah and the time of Jesus. The people of God were regathered. You know, the history goes up and down, but they were regathered. And they were particularly regathered as the temple was rebuilt. Verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, there were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbour. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its crops, its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heaven will drop, heavens will drop their dew. I'll give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. Uh, This is the, the mega promise. It resounds with the promises we read in the first five books of the Bible that God's people will live in God's land and God will provide abundantly for his people because God will dwell with his people, which is what the temple's all about. This promise is about God's presence with God's people in God's place as they experience the blessing of God. This promise is an encouragement, you know, strengthen your hands, an encouragement to keep going with the job, the one big job God had given his people to build his temple. They're to do it because it's what God wants and it's what God promises. And God doesn't make these promises because they're deserved. It's not about reward, it's not when you say to your kids, you know, if you do your homework then we'll go out for movies or whatever, no. God promises because of his grace And mercy, which is the seventh promise, verse 14. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to be good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other. And do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. This is all of grace. Do you see that? The reason God's people are to love one another, speaking the truth, bringing about true justice, they don't do this so that God will do good to his people. They do it because God has already promised to do good. God's grace, God's love spurs his people on to truth and to love. When we get to promise eight now, finally, God kind of answers the question about fasting. Promise eight, God is going to turn fasting into feasting, sorrow into joy. Verse 18, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth and peace. A great reversal. The final two promises are, in my opinion, they're the best. If you're going to pick some, I'm picking these two. They're the highlight. I think they're the goal of all the other promises. 
Uh, in the final two promises, God says what he's been promising since right back with Abraham. They're the best promises because they're the oldest promises repeated again. God will bless the descendants of Abraham, so the whole world will be blessed. And in those final two promises, the world, so you and I, the Gentiles, the nations are included. So here we go, promise nine. God promises to include the nations in his people. Verse 20, this is what the Lord Almighty says, many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. It's a great picture. People from all over the world, a multi-ethnic, omnicultural gathering of people, all coming together, all united by faith to the one true living God. Uh, the picture of the nation streaming to Jerusalem, Zechariah is not teaching that if you want to know God, you've got to go on pilgrimage to, to the Middle East. No, the, the language of pilgrimage, it's picking up Old Testament language because in those days you did have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to know and worship God. You had to go to the temple like the people from Bethel went to the temple to ask their question about feasting, but the temple is a shadow. The reality is Christ and his church. This promise is fulfilled as people seek Jesus and come to him. And the final promise says the same kind of thing. The nations, the peoples will desperately want to know the one true God. Verse 22, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. I love this picture. On one level, it's comical, isn't it? You know, there's a Jewish person walking down the street. And he or she is spotted and suddenly 10 non-Jews mob him. Tell me about your God. It's a bit strange. Though, put yourself back in the, the feet of the people in Zechariah's day. It would have been incredible. After the destruction they'd endured, the mockery and shame they'd faced from the nations. The nations, look, where is your God? How, how, what kind of God have you got if he allows you to be smashed like you've been? After decades of shame, how astounding is this promise? That, that the nations would one day want to know, desperately want to know Israel's God. That the nations would look and see God has not abandoned his people, but God is with them. It's an astounding promise. But I wonder whether there's more going on. More than a, a comical image of ten Gentiles mobbing a Jew. Now, now maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I wonder if the one Jew is really significant. Why is it that 10 people from the nations and 10 in prophetic symbolism often means complete, entire, so it's the, the whole Gentile world grabbing the hem of one Jew. I wonder if maybe there's a particular Jew God is speaking of, that the one Jew is the Messiah, that it's Jesus that this is a picture of people from every nation and language clinging to Jesus because where else can they go? In him alone is eternal life. In Christ alone is the presence of God. Maybe I'm making too much of these numbers, but maybe not. 
Because we do see this promise being fulfilled, don't we? In us and our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Now remember the big picture of these two chapters and particularly the question that kicks it all off and then the rebuke. These ten promises that culminate in the ten non-Jews grabbing hold of God's presence. It's these ten promises that give a basis, a foundation for true feasting and for true religion, for both loving God and loving neighbour. Brothers and sisters, if God has made and kept these promises, we have so much to celebrate. God is worthy of our praise, of our devotion, of our love, of our feasts, our fast, our prayer, our praise. If God has poured out his love on us in this way, we are able to pour out the same kind of love to our neighbours, to one another. You can't do one without the other. There is no way that we can tick off loving God from our to-do list if we're not also loving our neighbour. In the same way, there's nothing gained in doing all kinds of charitable charitable acts of love to our neighbours. You can do everything to care for the poor and the marginalised. If you're not doing it out of love of God, it is equally as futile. God God is not impressed if we love one but hate the other. But God calls us to, to, he calls people who who have received his grace to love him and to love each other. Which is why Jesus answered the question of the most important commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. They must go together. Christian, because of God's love, if you know the love of God, let's love him and our neighbour and show it in practical things we do. Let's pray. Father God, please open our eyes, open our hearts to know your love, grow our love for you, And out of love for you, strengthen us to show love for our neighbour, both our brothers and sisters in Christ, so caring for one another, but also showing love for the vulnerable, for those without family, without homes, without safety in their home countries. As we live out your love, may our acts of love give us opportunities to speak of the God who loves us, that by the Spirit our neighbours might come to know your love in Jesus. Amen.